Please welcome Peter Strickland. Okay, I will open up with a couple of questions, then open the floor to any questions or comments you have. Um, we've been talking over the years about your films, and uh, you mentioned recently that your idea and the story for Barbarian Sound Studio came around before um, you made your first film, Codling Varga. I'm just curious about the genesis of this film, because there, it feels like there are so many influences and so many different things going on. I wonder if this is something that gestated over time. I guess since I was a toddler, um, <laughs> being parked in the buggy in Jackson's department store in Reading, under the mannequin hands, which probably explains my lack of hair. Um, but just watching the movement of women shopping, watching them queue jumping, watching them stealing, it was very, in, as a kid, it was very in, intoxicating. And, um, God, I, this is a really, really bad reflection on Reading. <laughs> so I'm sure other department stores around the country, they just bought things. <laughs> and that very long queue for your money, because they had these pneumatic money pipes, and um, you could wait for minutes on end for your, for your change to come to travel back along this piping. And sometimes women would just leave without getting their change because they couldn't face this agonizing face-to-face weight, which I guess the online generation don't have with clicking for things. So I didn't know I'd make a film as an adult about this. Um, but yeah, things, I guess these things come back to bite you on the backside. Um, I mean, I, I suppose I got into M.R. James very late. I, I discovered these BFI, BBC adaptations. Um, and I thought I loved the un uncanny atmosphere and I just had this kind of fantasy. What if M.R. James had to write about the high street? Take the most prosaic setting possible. So get away from the misty beach or the haunted house and find the unfamiliar within the familiar, find this, this uncanny haunting, whatever. And just, just these images came up of looking out the window. If you're working in a store doing a stock take and seeing a queue of people at five in the morning, it's kind of still dark. and. And just gradually, more and more images came, came together. Um, but really, I think the idea of, of clothing being haunted, the, how difficult it is to get rid of a, of a shirt worn by someone you love who's died, um, that a shirt can move you to tears, how a shirt can arouse you, a shirt can disgust you, depending on who wore it, and how you feel when you put something on, how you feel transformed, how you can escape yourself, escape your troubles by wearing something or how you are reminded of your hatred of your own body if you wear something, you know, this body dysmorphia. And so I, I guess naturally that kind of came in, you know, that fed into the film, you know, with Babs and her body dysmorphia, which Reg doesn't understand. She doesn't understand his hosiery fetish. Um, but at the same time, they work, you know, they have this disconnect, but they're, in my mind, they're a sweet couple. So yeah, I, I guess just gradually things came from that. But, you know, for, for me, the number one thing was, was the power of an object and how haunting it, it can be. But it's always in association with humans, the, the human imprint on clothing. So the idea that you were developing, I think, originally was six stories. Yes. And I know you've, you've talked about the fact that budget restrictions brought you down to, to a smaller number of them. But why did you end up picking these two stories? Um... I guess they were the most interesting for me. Um, I mean, I could have had all six in this film and made each story shorter, 
but I, it was important to spend time with each character and to fall in love with those characters, for me anyway, um, and not treat them as pawns in a chess game, to experience their hopes and dreams and anxieties and desires. And, and then this random intrusion of the dress ending their, their lives. Um, so yeah, I think it was just a simple thing of, you know, I need time. I, I, when, I, when I wrote it, I wrote it as if this genre element was not there. I, I wanted to write it as a, you know, as, as like, you know, romantic drama, and suddenly, douche, it's, it's ended. Kind of. Watching this film again the other day, that um, it struck me that um, there's something almost novelistic about it. And I know that sort of ghost story, um, portmanteau ghost stories, both in, in film and also in television, but in fiction itself have been popular over the years. Um, I'm just curious about the writing process. Of, did, did you have an incredibly detailed treatment? And how long did that become? Or is it something that remained simple and you, do, you immediately went into writing the script? I, I don't write treatments. I, 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 I did it for something quite recently for a kid's film because I think a kid's film needs a lot of more money. And then I think you, with a bigger budget, you have to write a treatment to convince people. But usually I find it really difficult. I have to discover the story. I don't really write stories. <laughs> it's about the, the characters and the atmosphere. Um, and that's the fun of writing for me. I think you, that fun has disappeared if you already have a template. Just to write to something, it doesn't feel that exciting. For me, the excitement of writing is you, you start with a blank page and you don't know where, where you're going. I, I had no idea certain things were going to happen in this film. It's not planned in advance. Um, so that, that's a very important personal thing for me, the, the, the thrill of, of writing and putting yourself in that character's mind. And when it goes into autopilot and you're living that character, that's when things happen or don't happen. And, and, that, and the treatment is afterwards, basically. Yeah. So I, yeah. Uh, but I, I read it on spec, so this was not developed by anyone. I had another film with the BFI, so we couldn't go to them, so I, I wrote it as like a backup script but the other, other script collapsed. So this ended up as the main one. And was it an easy writing process? Because obviously with your other films, you have the trajectory of, and they're, they're all um, intricate character studies, but it is the tra trajectory of one or two characters, main central characters from start to finish. And this, the, the, the character, the through line is the dress. Yeah. And you have these smaller arcs. And was, was that more of a challenge? Um, not really, no. Um, it was like writing short films, and also I've always been fascinated by objects. I mean, my favorite directors were obsessed with objects, you know, Borovchik, Jan Schwankmeyer, Parajanov, Bunuel. Um, so really, the Quay brothers. Michael it was Bay. <laughs> Michael Bay, yes. I think it was just, yeah, it was really exciting for me to explore an object as, as, a, as, a, as a central character. And... Talk about the dress itself. Was was it always a dress from the outset, or did you have another item of clothing? No, it was a dress. But in hindsight, you know, it could have been a sock, which would have been wonderful, you know. Um, but I think the main thing with the dress was one of the first images in my head was the dress flying through the air. That came very early on, and I think a sock flying through the air wouldn't have the same resonance. <laughs> um, but yeah, that, I think mean, again, you just have the images in your head and you, things kind of organically 
develop from that, really. Um, we've, we've had a brief discussion about this before, but um, the way that you use language in your films, that in Barbarian, you, you have the language of, of filmmaking and of a particular kind of filmmaking in the 1970s. Um, in Duke of Burgundy, you, you've got this relationship, um, a balance of power between two women. And here you've got, and it's not just the extraordinary language of the shop. You, you have the language of the high street, of, of the bank. And then that contrasts with the intimate language within the domestic space. Well, yeah, I, I, I guess with, with the shop, I was just trying to go back to my days when I was working in retail, and it, it is a performance. Um, and I think having lived in this place called Europe, maybe you might know it, um, it's, um, you're aware of how euphemistic the English language is. When I wasn't having, you know, I was born and raised in the UK, and having been away for many years, I thought, oh my God, actually, was just, what a crazy language we have. Um, I remember going to a job centre years ago, and there was a shelf stacking job in the night shift, and they called it um, Twilight Replenishment Operative. <laughs> and so really what I'm doing, I'm just exaggerating real life. I, for me, I, I don't feel this is a bizarre film. What I do find bizarre, other, other people don't find bizarre. So what is bizarre for me is the supernatural element with the dress. But that's, like a, that's so entrenched now in genre cinema that people, it's kind of normalised. But all the regular stuff on the high street, the bank, the shop, that's, that's an exaggeration of how people speak. You know, with the bank, it's slightly toned down. But again, I have that corporate language. Um, okay, I, I, no one has said feeding time when I've been in those jobs. But it's, um, you know, like the Wangel's wavelength. I used to work at ASDA, and you had the ASDA experience. You know, you have charts in the background, and everyone has to go bowling. Um, <laughs> I'd rather stack shelves than go bowling, but anyway. Um, I still find but, it amazing that you were employed at TGI Fridays. I'd love to have been there when you were working at TGI Fridays. I actually really liked it. Um, it forced me to be happy. I was, um, <laughs> you, mean, you think I'm indulgent now. I was even more indulgent back then. So I was a very... Um, so I, I, I also, you know, I, I mean, okay, we're from a middle-class family, but... Um, you know, I was taught to sort of save up for things, you know, work and save up for things. So I, I saved up for my first Canon SLR camera and my first Brown Nitzo Super 8 camera. And I dropped the SLR within about two months of buying it. So that was a waste of time at TJ Fridays. But anyway, that's another story. Um, but yeah, at TJ Fridays, we used to, on the Saturday morning, this is 1989, so maybe they don't do this anymore. Um, I, do BAFTA members go to TGIs? Well, you should, anyway. But um, uh, we all line up and greet the first customer, which never worked in Reading, because everyone's a bit inhibited. Everyone kind of <laughs> shuffles in. It might work in Greece. You know, I'm half Greek. But, um, but yeah, I mean, these things come back. I mean, I never thought back then I can use this for a film. But I, I think watching The Office, again, it's not a very glamorous reference, but what was so interesting about The Office was it really evoked that world that many of my friends were living in, of these white-collar jobs whilst you're lying in wait to get your big film break. We'd see this as dead time. It's a, a complete waste of time. But actually, no, all these things are experience. You, you can use it. And I think it was so interesting the way he just had this 
wonderful human drama out of these jobs, which I used to dismiss when I was doing them. But actually, you know, actually yeah, there, there are many great stories you can get from all that. Really. There's that interesting element of um, the, the two, the kind of bank manager double act, <laughs> that, that middle management um, passive aggressiveness. It's so British, so, so British, yeah, 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 yeah. And they often come in twos. Um, yeah, no, I mean, for me, I, they're my favorite scenes in a way. Uh, but again, it was trying to, if I did it as something, you know, there's a danger of being earnest and self-pitying, and then it, become, it just loses its, it loses something. I think, it's, I think this, after, this idea of laughter through, this catharsis through humor, works a lot better. Let's take some questions if we have. We've got a roving mic. Is one person down here? Hi, um, I just wondered, um, you said your script changed a little bit as you were, well, uh, I just wondered if it changed during the filming, if you rewrote some scenes, if there was any improvisation with the actors or anything sort of during filming. Um, it's always changing. I mean, even in post-production, it changes. I mean, even the sound mix, I was writing dialogue. So when Fatma Mohammed came in to do some overdubs, I thought, oh, actually, we could use you to do some announcements. Um, you know, this one where you have to return to your houses. That was written at the very last minute. Um, improvisation, in this film, not so much. The odd line here or there. Um, there was rewriting on set, of course. You know, if something is just rhythmically not working, I mean, I was, I'm constantly, constantly changing things. So it'd be interesting to compare the, the script I had in August 2017 versus October 2017. So I remember there were, I think Kasia was here, who was the line producer, a very good line producer. She probably has a better idea than me of what was changing. But I remember there was, a, plus deletions as well. There's no time to do stuff. A lot of scenes ended up not being used. But yeah, for me, it's like a constant process. And with the changing of the script, I know that you were interested quite early on um, bringing Marianne Jean-Baptiste on board. Did that change the script at all when, when you got confirmation that she would be in it? It did. Not massively. Um, when I wrote that part, I didn't know who was going to play her. There's only one actor I had in mind when I wrote it, and that was Fatma Mohammed to play Miss Luckmore, because I always work with, with Fatma, and I write with her voice in mind. Um, so I knew I wanted someone um, British and 50-something. And it was Toby Jones. I did a radio play with him, and I was just talking about this film I'm doing. And he said, what about Marianne? And, um, and then it, it led to that. We, we, we asked her to do it. But this was way back before we could go to the BFI or BBC or anyone like that. This is just it's more like a speculative offer. But that did change the script, yeah. I mean, not, not hugely, no. Um, a tiny bit, a tiny bit, here or there. And how easy was the casting process? Quite easy, actually. Um, I mean, we didn't cast that much beyond Marianne because, again, we had no money, so we just wanted a lead actor. Um, once the BFI and BBC came on board and Bankside, of course, um, then it was quite organic. I mean, I knew some of those people. So, uh, Julian Barrett and Steve Oram... I did radio plays with them, two separate radio plays. So it was a very easy thing of just calling them up. 
Gwendolyn had seen the Duke of Burgundy, so that was quite an easy thing. Um, nothing, the tricky ones were the son, Vince. Yeah. We just couldn't find the right actor, so we went through many, many auditions. And only at the very end, we found Jagan, who was just wonderful. Um, the hardest one was actually Mr. Lundy. Um, the, careful how I describe him. Um, He's a bit horny, but anyway, um, he, um, as you can probably imagine, a lot of men didn't want to do that, which I completely respect. So we had a lot of rejections. <laughs> um, Toby, bless him, he didn't want to do it either. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I love Toby, so you know, I'm not remotely offended. It's fine. You know, it's a very personal thing. You know, so um, eventually we found Shaheen, I should say, Shaheen Baig, who was casting. She found Richard Bremer. He was the only one he was sort of con would consider it. Um, he's wonderful. He's just great. What a great guy. And but yeah, I mean, that, obviously that was a very difficult scene. And I remember when we were editing that scene, and the look on his face after I said cut, it's like, what did you make me do? <laughs> um, and of course, you have Barry Adamson as well, who um, I kind of always thought Barry Adamson might be someone that you would bring on board at some point in time to contribute to the soundtrack. Mm -hmm. not to actually have in front of the camera. I didn't think of that either. It was Shaheen. Um, I was really inspired by Joanna Hogg when she had Viv Albertine oh, exhibition. in exhibition. Yeah. I hadn't seen that done in a long time. And the last person I remember doing that was Nick Rogue with, with you know, Art Garfunkel and Barry and Jagger. So it, it, I thought, yeah, I would just love to do that. Just try and get a musician, just try to cast differently, really. Um, and asked for her, I asked for her for advice, and she she suggested Barry Adamson. And I was aware of him, of course. I remember buying Oedipus Schmidipus when it came out in '96, and I was aware of the bands he had been in and his solo work. But I never would have thought of him as an actor. But it, it was a great hunch from Shaheen. He was complete. You know, I had this before with performers from improv and avant-garde who they would do auditions for earlier films and they couldn't be themselves they were acting as themselves and it just didn't work and it's a very very difficult thing to do but he, he managed it um and so the very natural he brings to that yes. role is yeah. a surprise for me mm -hmm. do we have another question um actually let's let's talk about the thing a lot of people talk about with with your films which is sound um, and the, the really fascinating thing, that your, your scripts are beautifully constructed, um, but there is much more than just the script. There's so many sequences without dialogue um, that work so incredibly well, and a lot of it is to do with the sound design and the way that you employ music within your films. It depends, really. I, I remember the Duke of Burgundy, um, we had a scene with Fatma playing a bondage carpenter who came to make a bondage bed for um, Evelyn. And I wrote a very long scene, lots of dialogue, which is, it had a lot of exposition about how this bed would, would work. Um, and to get the actors in the mood, sometimes I play music, which is relevant to, I guess, the mood, the, the, the rhythm. So I played a piece by Giuseppe De Luca called Dorian Gray, an old Italian piece which sounds a bit like Podiconi. And 
remember Fatma, she had this tape measure, she started moving with this like, very strange movement. And I thought, actually, we don't need this dialogue. We can make it work without that. So it's a very spontaneous thing of, let's just do it with movement. Um, Nick Noland, who shot the film, um, had this idea of coming up with these mirrors and bevels and anything which was heightened, which was kind of where the characters were getting aroused, um, the mirrors would come out. <laughs> so, um, um, that was, again, that, from Nick, you know, that was entirely him. Um, so that was a very spontaneous thing, and it, it kind of worked. Um, so some of it is planned, some of it is by accident. I'm more interested in explaining the accidents. They're more interesting, you know, if you plan something, you plan something, you can't really talk about that. But I remember with this film, uh, Martin Pavey, the, the sound mixer, um, he wanted some general chatter, as he would for a department store. And we always like to do things with, you know, well, anyway, he, he got six or seven women to come into the studio and stand in a semicircle and improvise shop chatter. It was their trip to the shops. Um, that was my only note. <laughs> this is your trip to the shops. Um, and I started improvising, and I fell asleep, um, which for me is a sign that, that something is working. Um, I felt like I was falling under their spell. And it just it fed into this whole idea of making an autonomous sensory meridian response yeah. film. Um, which, is the, which I don't know if you might want to explain. Uh, or ASMR. A lot of the inspiration came from YouTube videos where yeah. someone whispers or um, turns pages from catalogues. And it's meant um, to have a physical reaction beyond. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't call it an erotic response. It's a, it's a sensual response. It's a visceral or tactile feeling. You, you can go into a bit of a trance or you can fall asleep. Mm. Um, and that summed up the film for me. Um, so we started using that. We, I never felt we got the look right for the store. Um, I take some of the blame. I think time is the main culprit. We had 27 days to shoot the film. And I really wanted to feel we're going into a different space with the store. That was so important, because that's how I remember those department stores. So the sound, we really we needed it to be done with the sound. We just couldn't get it right. We just tried all kinds of things. And I think with these women coming in, it was a very much a last minute thing. It was like, and I was not, not expecting this sound. So we took all the foley off. We took all the Atmos off, completely cleaned up the tracks, just dialogue, a bit of music, and then this muttering which we treated it as score. So it's completely fake the way we use it. You know, we're using crescendos, we're punching it in, punching it out. And then to me, it felt like everything was in suspension. And it, I think we kind of salvaged it somehow with that. But it, again, I think um, other times we used library sound for the montage sequences, which I think that feeling from my childhood of the sound of the high street, not just from, from my memories, but also from television public information films, it always have that sound, or, or avant-garde cinema, like John Smith's The Girl Chewing Gum. So we wanted specific, generic, it was very important to be generic sound that, of chatter, really. I'm, so it was a mixture, really. I'm, I'm curious that you say you don't think you got the look of the department stores. Um, because one of the things I love about it is that yes, there's an element, particularly when you're young, of going in as a child, and it, it is this exotic world. Um, 
but there's, to me, there's also this sort of general banality about department stores. And what I find really fascinating is the way that you use the costumes that the staff wear. I like that those. Send it into this incredibly timeless place. Mm. That this, this is not even though this is the 90s. It's it's also once you walk through those doors, you could be in any decade stretching back a hundred years. But that was again. That's that's my memory. I mean, the the, the, the um, facades were you know Edwardian or Victorian. Um, you had elements from the 50s, 60s, 70s. So those stores were. Anachronistic is not the right word. It's just, yeah, I, I, I can't describe them, which is maybe why I tried to make a film about them. Um, but I, I guess I was obsessed with Jacksons and Reading. Um, and I think that, that's the curse of writing your own material, that you're never going to get it on screen. Sometimes it's better on screen, sometimes it's worse, sometimes it's different. It's extremely rare to have exactly what you had in your mind. Um, Someone got it right, because I think Endeavour, this TV series, they shot in Jackson's, so I was, I think I was dealing a lot with my jealousy. Um, of Endeavour? Yeah. Um, it didn't help that Joe Thompson, who did costumes, she worked on that, so I kept hearing stories about Endeavour. And um, so there was this Endeavour curse going on, um, which is a personal hang-up. Um, but it looked remarkable, what they did. And yeah. it was, you know, the wood panelling, everything, I was... Yeah, I, I haven't quite got over that. I, I, yeah, because you know Jackson's closed. It, it got gutted yeah. six weeks before we started shooting. Two thousand sixteen. Well, two thousand thirteen. Well, we shot this in two thousand seventeen. And yeah, but um, Jackson's itself closed in two thousand thirteen. Right. But Endeavour used it afterwards, so they were using it as a set until we came along, of course. Um, then it was too late. They shut the doors on us. I did not think we'd be having a conversation about a young Morse on stage, <laughs> but it. it it is quite, it's interesting, though, though, that you talk about you didn't get something right, but um, the one thing that is clear in all your films is the attention to detail. Um, and one of the things I was thinking about this film in relation to the previous two, I, I, I got this sense that both Barbarian and Duke of Burgundy are these, even though you occasionally shoot outdoors, these very closeted worlds in which everything is designed to the ninth degree. And with this, you're kind of stepping between two worlds, one that's ultra-designed and one that's, that's everyday. And I wondered if that's something you were conscious of at the time and wanted to kind of move away and, and capture some sense of reality. I didn't, actually. But weirdly, the response to the film is better than <laughs> what I thought it might be. But I think the response is to do with that, that... that battle between real life and artifice. If I had my way, I would have gone much further with the artifice. And I was always frustrated that real life is getting in the way and we just can't shut real life out because we didn't have the time, we didn't have the money. Um, with the other films, again, you know, two actors, one house, you could, you could control everything. And I, I guess, personally, the cinema I love is very artificial. Um, going way back to Powell and Pressburger, the Cray brothers, I love that element of design, that you can create this whole world, or even people like Helen Catet and Bruno Fazzani, who just can completely concoct their own sound. Um, we couldn't do that. But now I should start pretending I wanted that, because I'm realizing that's what people like about <laughs> the film. So from this moment on, I'm just gonna say that was by design. Yeah. 
Um, we've got time for a final question, if there is. In that case, I'm, I'm finally going to touch on and it's something you, you sort of mentioned a little bit earlier. Um, I find it quite fascinating that when people have been talking about this film since it premiered, um, there are references to Giallo films and your previous work. There, there, there seems to be a lot of references to so many horror films. And yet, it strikes me watching this that, and thinking about your other work, um, the primary concern is sexuality. Uh, yeah, yeah. More, of than, course, more yeah. than just going for a straightforward horror. I mean, with horror, <clears throat> I can take it or leave it, really. I mean, my attraction to Giallo cinema is not because of, of that. It's to do with the, again, it's the artifice. It's, it's the poetry. I mean, if Caravaggio made films, he would be making Giallo films. Um, the light and darkness, the, the soundtracks. Um, but, yeah, I guess they were very hot-blooded, the way they were done. Um, but I, I guess when it comes to, to desire, it's, I think the one I come, the director I come back to again and again is... Well, it was always this struggle between the facade of respectability uh, and the animal side within. And so interesting how he did that. And, you know, with violence, I mean, it's something we don't crave, you know, with desire, it's something, you know, it's within us. And I think it doesn't matter whether you're single or not single, you know, it's Desire is something we all experience, whether it's satiated or not satiated. You know, it's so much part of our, the reason we're here. So to me, it's interesting now with, um, it seems to be like a bit of a no-no subject, but uh, it's something, it's like an endless source of inspiration, how, how it defines people. And even in very non-sexual scenarios, it's still, you know, Gilderoy, you know, it's very repressed, very latent, but it's still, I think, it, his desires define him somehow. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, when we did this film, there were some objections to certain scenes. Um, and obviously, the last few years have been very momentous with Me Too, which, what I don't understand about it is why that didn't happen thousands of years ago, <laughs> why, why the Me Too movement only happened now. Um, so I think it's a really important movement, but when it, it's used to kind of censor films, and I think no one is stopping knife crime in cinema. It's, I think it's, um, I mean, I, you know, if an individual says, I don't want to watch this scene, it, I, I find it makes me uncomfortable or whatever, I completely respect that. But now we're having, with America, they're, they're cutting the scene with the menstrual blood. Um, but at the same time, something like, I haven't seen those Saw films, but I'm imagining they feature a lot of mutilation. Um, so are you saying that's more acceptable than something, you know, like a very natural function? Um, so, yeah, I think there's a weird double standard with violence and sex, and, um, and yeah, I'm talking about the screen. I'm not yeah. talking about real life. Yeah. Real life is a completely different thing, I think. Um, but, yeah, that's... Um, there, was, there was a very good example um, a number of years ago that the critic Tom Huddleston spoke about, um, which is one of the episodes of The Walking Dead, where a huge corpulent body was dragged out of a well, and as it reached the lip of a well, it literally split in two, and these maggots came pouring out. And in the next scene, two of the main characters were about to have sex in an empty department store. Department store. And just as the woman goes to take her top off, they cut away. 
that, and the idea of having anything. I'm not, I'm not, not actually talking about the nakedness, the, mm. the element of it. It's, it's just the idea of dealing with something, anything to do with sex, as opposed to it's fine having violence in films. Yeah, no, of course, of course. I mean, I mean, I think within that there are issues, of course. If you're having films where women are, it's only women getting naked and, and then men are not, then I can see there was an issue with that. So I think within that there are many very complex arguments, but in general, I think um, as filmmakers, again, you respect an individual saying, I don't want to see that, but I still think we should have the freedom to explore the, these subjects, which are taboo, of course. Um, And I'm not claiming that, you know, I think the, the, these films are, are for adults. I'm, I'm saying, you know, I'm not saying, you know, it's kind of weird. I, I fall between two camps, especially when it comes to, to violence. Um, there's the camp that says violence is completely unacceptable. You shouldn't show it. Sex and violence, blah, 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 blah. And there's the other camp that says, no, it doesn't do any harm whatsoever. I've always been in the middle. I always think it's like alcohol. You know, these things are can tip someone over the edge. It doesn't mean you, sh you should ban them. So I've always felt that, you know, these subjects are um, volatile, but it doesn't mean, I think you can acknowledge they're volatile, but it doesn't mean you shouldn't explore them. In Fabric opens at the end of June. Thank you to BAFTA and Curzon for organizing this event. But most of all, can you please join me in thanking Peter Strickland? Thank you. Thanks. Thank you.